a curious connection between my mother's world and culture and the part of me that is Assyrian and then a, a very small town in Maine. And of course, my, my name, un unless you know anything about me, my name is going to tell you nothing about this part of me because sure. camouflages are just completely masks any of that. Hello, Assyrian Podcast listeners. It's Odessa here with episode 169 of the Assyrian Podcast. Let me set the scene for you. It's February 2022. I'm searching through scholarships that would be applicable to the general students I work with who are the first in their families to go to college also known as first-gen students. And I stumble upon a scholarship for $30,000 plus on a popular scholarship website that is called bull.org. And the scholarship reads, Rita's first-gen scholarship. My grandmother was an Assyrian immigrant who grew up and suffered persecution in the Soviet Union. Her family fled to Iran where, believing passionately in education, she worked to help her three brothers attend school despite not having the opportunity to complete high school herself. After marrying a U.S. soldier and moving to America, she had a son, my father. She worked as a waitress and then in a factory, learning English, her fifth language, along the way. My father grew up to be the first in his family to finish high school and get a college degree. A career diplomat, he became a U.S. ambassador. His children, myself included, never had to worry about access to education. This is all thanks to my grandmother who desperately wanted an education for herself but sacrificed for others instead. She elevated the course of our family's trajectory forever. I would like to honor her by changing the course for someone else. Just imagine as I was reading this, all the hairs on my arms stood up because how often does it happen that you come across a scholarship that mentions the word Assyrian and is open to all? I did a quick scholarship search to find Claire Wooster, the granddaughter of Rita, who had put together the scholarship and had to find out more. We connect and she tells me the wonderful story of her grandmother, the motivation behind the scholarship, and mentions her father, Henry Wooster, who just so happens to be the U.S. ambassador to Jordan. What? An Assyrian who is a U.S. ambassador? And then it struck me that Rain Hanna of the Assyrian Policy Institute mentioned him to me years back and that it would be great to have him on the podcast. Well, thanks to Claire, I connected with Ambassador Wooster and had a chance to hear more about his life, his upbringing, his work as a diplomat, and honoring his mother and her legacy through the scholarship. He has a great story, and I know you'll enjoy this interview. This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. That's O-U-S-H-A-N-A. Want to advertise with us? We've got a worldwide audience just waiting to hear about your business. To inquire, send us an email at info at assyrianpodcast.com. And without further ado, here is Ambassador Henry Wooster.
Well, Ambassador Wooster, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to be on the Assyrian podcast. Like I had mentioned to you, the world uh, is very small and being able to connect with your daughter and then hearing about you and the work that you do, I knew I had to connect with you and get you on the podcast. So thank you so much. No, my great pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. So could you start by telling me a little bit about your parents and the story of how they met? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. So my father is a was uh, a Maine Yankee, uh, generations of you know Maine in him, and he joined the army. Uh, is the short version and made a career of it. And so at some point in his career, where were we? Mm, roughly the midway point in his career, he volunteered for assignment to what in those days used to be called the Amish Mag. So MAG stood for Military Assistance Advisory Group. I don't know why they just didn't call it Army. But anyway, <laughs> they, were, um, they were charged with training, obviously in the era of the Shah, various components of the, the Iranian military. So my father was one of the uh, military trainers. And I think in his case, it was with the, uh, when there used to be such a thing as the Pahlavi Brigade. Mm-hmm. I think that was the group that he was dealing with uh, most of the time. And so that's what he did. Now, my mother, now here, there's a windy long story how she ends up in Iran, because it's for most listeners, particularly if they are of Assyrian heritage, they'll think, well, of course, we know that tribe or that crew, but they will not be entirely correct, but I'll understand the assumption. How does she meet my dad? She meets my dad by virtue of just a little bit of history. And so it works quickly like this. So her mother uh, is from, uh, or mother's family, excuse me, are from the area that today you and I, or any uh, person in the 21st century would understand is predominantly uh, what are within the contours of southeastern Turkey. It's Mm, so close to the Iran border that before people were more particular about borders, they were porous. Yeah, a little here, a little there. Uh, and then my mother's father's family are from, well, the Hakari Mountains. Um, and of course, the mountains are huge. So you might be asking, well, where in there? And that's a more particularized story. But anyway, so he's from there and she is from the other part. So on a map, fundamentally the same sort of footprint uh, of southeastern Turkey. But to the best of my knowledge, neither they nor any of their own direct family members had any contact with one another in those days in that area. How did they come into contact? They came into contact fleeing that part of the world uh, around the time of the Armenian, what's commonly referred to as the Armenian genocide. Um, But in Assyrian, we also have a uh, a SAFO. We also have a term for this period. So her father's family and her mother's family, independently, of course, both fled that area and headed up to what in those days used to be uh, Christian Russia. And I say that because it was before the Soviet Revolution, which, of course, then it's officially agnostic and so forth. So they both headed north, both families. I'm not sure of the particulars of how my grandfather's family fared, but he was the his parents were killed. So he was not fleeing with his mother and father. Uh, mm-hmm. He was fleeing with an uncle who I think in truth was more like Uncle uh, was more of an elastic term. He was maybe more like a, a close friend of the family, second, uh, maybe a second uncle, properly speaking. 
Uh, and my maternal grandmother's family were headed up through the Caucasus as well. Uh, anyway, the two of them, my grandmother and grandfather, meet and marry in uh, what you and I today would know as Ukraine. And mm-hmm. even the period they married, it was, but it um, came to be, of course, the Soviet Union. And eventually, my grandfather, my father's mother, he gets the dreaded knock on the door in the late 1930s in Kiev, which is where they were living at the time. And so he was sent off to the Gulag, to Siberia. And this was 1937, which was sort of the peak of that kind of thing. And in his case, interesting again, perhaps for our Syrian audience, this was less about being a Syrian per se, but it was more about being among the mongrel group of untrustworthy or, or you know, uh, people for whom they had reason to be suspicious. So he was not an intellectual. He was not educated. He was literate, but he wasn't educated and he was not politically active. So you might naturally and rightly be wondering, what's the threat here? Well, the threat was you from a suspicious ethnic group, meaning you're not proven to be uh, reliable. So therefore, you are suspicious, even if you have done anything. Uh, that's just bad. So mm-hmm. off you go. Weirdly, uh, perversely, cosmically, if you believe in fate or absurdity or providence, he, my grandfather, while he is uh, in prison or in the gulag more properly, the Second World War opens. And at that point, the Soviet Union, to include in the even in the punishment camps, realized, hey, we need to feed and arm the Red Army. And we can't afford to just be merely punitive. We, we need to sustain the, the Red Army. So a long story short, he got put on a forced collective farm. And at that point, after two years where my grandmother, much le- and of course my mother, had no idea. They were told he was dead and they should assume he's dead. A long story short, through an underground network, really just a Syrian ethnic underground network of um, uh, mothers, wives, uh, that's how they, you know, just trading rumor, 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 rumor. Probably 90% of it is misinformed and maybe 10% has some truth, not out of intent to trade mm-hmm. um, bad information. They just, you know, by the time it's like that children's game at a party, you have little Susie, um, say, blue cat. And by the time it gets to Johnny, who's three people away, it's purple uh, umbrella, mm-hmm. right? So, so, you know, the information gets garbled along the way. Anyway. At the end of the Second World War, and I'm sorry, they were able to join him on the forced collective because at that point, the more the merrier putting their back to the, the grindstone or the wheel to support the Red Army, they were able to join him. At the end of the Second World War, when the Soviet Union was still fairly chaotic because it had a devastating effect. Well, any war is devastating, but certainly the Soviet Union had lost millions and millions of people and things were a bit loosey goosey. So uh, my mother's father, uh, was making a decision about, should I stay or go? Some of his closest friends, uh, no surprise here, Assyrians, and now the men, and again, similarly, who many of them had been in the gulag with him or on the forced collective, uh, they would pass messages back and forth. Some of them had left to go back into Russia, Russia in the sense of Ukraine, Russia, Moscow, Kiev, the major cities. Mm-hmm. And some had gone to Iran. Because the word amongst the Assyrian community, at least those of them in my grandfather's circle, was it's, quote, okay, end of quote, there again to to be an Assyrian, to go back. So um, what they did was they set up a code, and the code was 
you send a picture when you can, those of you who are already in Iran. And if anyone in that picture is lying down sideways, that is an indicator. That's the signal that it's not okay to come. Oh, wow. Okay. Not good. If, however, no one in that photo is lying down, that's a thumbs up. It's good. Come on down, so to speak. Anyway, one day after receiving several of the other pictures, they got one of these, which was you and I would call in colloquial English, a thumbs up. And so they went and they bribed their way. They had worked their way over from Siberia, uh, which in, in, in Russia or in, in today's Russian Federation, same then, meant you had to come from deeply into the interior where, we, where you were and work your way westward and then come to uh, what today you and I know as Azerbaijan and to, to Baku. And then they bribed uh, somebody on a steamship who took them to the then Iranian port of Pahlavi. The port's still there, but it's obviously got a different name today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they worked their way down to Tehran. That's a very long way of telling you that's how my mother ended up in Tehran, mm-hmm. and how my father ended up in Iran, and how they met was she began to work uh, for an Armenian who ran a coffee shop. And because, of course, of the strictures in many of the Assyrian families about particularly daughters, and especially so then, uh, where could she be out and working and mixing among others? Well, uh, the Armenian qualified as a thumbs up because it was a fellow Christian. Mm-hmm. That's just the blunt truth of it. And so she went to work there, and my father used to frequent that shop because they were one of the places where he could get a cup of coffee, not so much the Middle Eastern small, right, but the more standard cup of joe, as we'd say in modern day. Uh, And they actually, I think, uh, had at least something resembling a donut. So my father, uh, of course, as a a good American GI, came to have a fondness for this place. Anyway, one thing led to another. That's how they met. And that's probably the longest response you've ever had to a simple question. No, that's great, because that also answers the the follow-up question that I had, which was, if you had any understanding of where your mother's grandparents came from. Um, so you had mentioned different parts of Southeast Turkey. Do you recall which villages or which tribes that they are a part of? So funny you would say that, because uh, I have been in the midst of, for the past maybe a year and a half, for the first time in my life, actually doing, uh, albeit as an amateur, some amount of genealogical work. Mm -hmm. This has been aided in the modern era through DNA. Mm -hmm. And also in the case of my father's side, pretty easy to find a lot of records, not everything, but many of them. So you can put together the tree. Well, my tree is very blossomed. You know, it's rich with leaves and branches over on my father's side and on my mother's side because of all the things that uh, the Assyrian people have been through and primarily the destruction of records fleeing from one place to another, I have very little except hearsay to go on. So my mother's brothers, two of the three of them are still alive. They're both in the States and I have gone over with them exactly this information. And, you know, they're really pulling, they're really drawing from uh, what they recollect they don't have documentation. And so I don't have documentation. So all I have is very loose stuff. So unfortunately, I can't answer with uh, much satisfaction for you or any presumed particularly 
tribal historians who are out in the listening community about, okay, which millet exactly are we talking about here? So um, yeah, the short answer is I can't do you a lot of justice because I can't do much for myself. All I know is, again, with my um, grandfather, it was in the Hakari Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, with my grandmother, it was uh, down more in the lowlands. So this this kind of area and understanding in terms of trying to go back and understand that is a, a work in progress, you can say. Yeah, it's a work in progress. It's quite literally a work in progress, unfortunately. Yeah. And I'd welcome it. There's wisdom for many of your viewers about, hey, you might try this. Um, yeah, I, I've had a very difficult, I've connected with DNA relatives who are Assyrian, at least those who voluntarily, you know, click that button on ancestry, family tree, 23, whichever thing they're using and say they're willing to to be connected. But it, it, they suffer from a similar thing. So that typically they'll, you know, going back to grandma and grandpa isn't uh, very difficult for most any of us. But getting past that, it's a cliff drop off in clarity about when, who, where, you know, did you know them? What is your mother's maiden name? Kako. Kako. Okay. Well, maybe listeners. Might well, the Slavic version was Kakovich, Kakovich. right? Because that was, you know, that was added on anybody who was living in that part of the world. But Kako was the original. Kako. Yeah. Well, we might have a listener or two <laughs> have raised eyebrows and say, hey, maybe that's right. someone or related to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Where were you born and raised? Fort Jackson, South Carolina, courtesy of the U.S. Army. That's where I was born. Um, but beyond being born there and spending the first couple of years of my life there, um, I don't, I honestly don't have any memories. Any memories of it I have really are from photos uh, that my parents have from that time of the family, of me, uh, picnics, that kind of thing. I was, you know, I was too young to actually carry any real memories of it. My first memories are uh, back in Tehran because given my father's ties there and obviously my mother's when they met and were married in Tehran they then of course came to the states um, I don't know maybe a year year and a half later Um, but by the time I was born uh, and with my father's military career moving about here and there we found ourselves back in Iran but the first time we found ourselves back in Iran and I was aged maybe two and a half to three and a half so I have dim memories uh, you know just these flashing things in your head of uh, like a, a what today would be a, about the speed, the, the duration of a gif, mm-hmm. you know, of, of a moment or a couple of these moments. Mm-hmm. I have that. And then Maine was where when my father retired from the army, um, we we made it home. So a curious connection between my mother's world and culture and the part of me that is Assyrian and then a, a very small town in Maine. And of course, my my name Unless you know anything about me, my name is going to tell you nothing about this part of me because it camouflages or just completely masks any of that uh, thing. And there were no Assyrians that I think my mother or I were ever aware of anywhere in Maine. Maybe at some point, one or another immigrant family had made their way to somewhere there at one point. But we had, there was no community and as best we knew, no other Assyrian anywhere in the state of Maine. Sure. Um, but we would periodically go back to Iran and summers, things like this, and visit my grandparents. And at one point, we went back there. I did the fourth grade there. 
And so we stayed for a summer before it. We stayed through the school year. We stayed for a summer after it. So that was a more prolonged experience. And then once when I was, um, I can't, I think it was the summer when I was 14, we were back there again. So several trips back there. And of course, we would reconnect with the part of the family, which was the majority that time who were in Iran. Do you recall your mom ever telling you about what the experience was like when she had met your husband and what she had told the family and how the family reacted? Was that common for a Syrian woman at that time to get married to? I know I have my great aunt who married a German because yeah. of, you know, right. and she was in Iran and somehow ended up connecting with him. But I'm curious to know if she had ever told you of that story and if if that was a tough conversation to have with the family, if that was something that went well. Yeah, I mean, uh, my mother, you'd have to understand a little bit of her. In many ways, she was uh, certainly by Assyrian traditional standards, a bit of a rebel. Mm. Um, well, I, I don't want to suggest anything strange, but my mother, so for instance, of course, uh, a good Assyrian family, three boys, and my mother, she's the oldest. And the idea was the boys was we're going to try to get you educated best we can. And that worked out well for them. And my mother's case was like, okay, we got to get you as marriageable as we can. And so when the boys went off to, at least in, uh, in Tehran, to the French Jesuit school, mm. to, uh, of course, you know, college preparation, and this was the path uh, up and out. Uh, my mother was packed up with the sisters, the nuns, to learn how to sew and so forth, which, you know, just just really didn't click with my mother. <laughs> uh, you know, not any hostility or anything, but just not her speed. Uh, my mother is very extroverted, highly energetic. Just, you know, her idea of the next step in my life, particularly as a uh, young woman, was was not that. So my mother, uh, in cahoots with one of her pals, snuck out or would volunteer for reasons to sneak out. Oh, someone needs to go out to the bazaar and get whatever. <laughs> oh, you know, sister, I can do that. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's no pain. It's no trouble. Sure, I'll go. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, every opportunity she could to um, not sit in what she described as stultifying sewing classes. So she did that. And eventually, again, in cahoots with another one of her Assyrian friends, girlfriend, who turned, of course, to a, who became a lifelong uh, member of our broader family because that girlfriend of hers, her daughter married my mother's brother. Anyway, long story. Oh, wow. So that was. They live now in California and all that stuff. But anyway, the, we'll step back from that just for a moment. The two of them, I'm not sure quite how, but the girlfriend had originally found this Armenian coffee shop and was working there and got my mother into it. So for a period of time, my mother was telling her, notably, most particularly her father, of course, her mother too, oh, yes, I'm continuing my sewing classes when she wasn't. Ah. Uh, she was, yes, she was sneaking out the side door. Anyway, so yeah, it was, um, it was a difficult thing because, you know, this is a guy coming from outside the culture. The family had been through a lot of tumult. I think the only, you know, the, the initial plus side he had going for him was, okay, well, whatever we do or don't know about him, he is a Christian, mm -hmm. which was a question. And, he, and again, in the interest of candor, just amongst listeners who I, I know are not shocked by that if they uh, weren't born into the Assyrian world this morning. So that was a key criterion. And my father checked that box 
And then uh, they eventually, as they realized this is looking like it's going somewhere, wanted to get a background check on him, which they, as, I don't know if it was in the engagement or I guess maybe just before that, before they would assent to it, it was, you know, we need to know a little something. So I still have the paperwork, which uh, my father has attesting from the U.S. Embassy and from his commander that no, in fact, he was not a known felon or anything else or didn't have a criminal record or more particularly a previous family. Interesting. Yeah, because that's how the Assyrian network works anyway, right? The first thing they want to know, who is he? Who is his family? And so if he's not Assyrian, they've got to have some sort of reference point. So they couldn't think that he had the reference papers to show. (laughs) Well, he he got them. I mean, because he was asked. And I don't think think he had them as a matter of course, but he had to develop them. And then as a condition of, uh, eventually, as a condition of marriage, um, he did, in fact, my mother had to get checked out by the U.S. government, particularly mm-hmm. this is the Cold War and my mother's born in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they are not thinking about the Assyrian thing. They're just thinking, oh, my God, she's a you know, she's a red. Right. So they've got they've got to check her out and get her cleared. So they did. And then my father likewise had to get um, it seems uh, medieval, maybe to, to modern listeners, but permission. Um, my father, the American, also had to get permission through American channels to get married. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, you know, this was they got married in 1958. And was your mother the first of her family to uh, move to immigrate to the to the United States after that? She was. Okay. Um, she absolutely was. And her parents only were able to join as a result of going through the usual petitioning Mm-hmm. Uh, exercise in the American mm-hmm. immigration system for a mm-hmm. member of family. Mm-hmm. But at that time, the Iranian revolution uh, had already begun cracking off. And so um, we had to go to extraordinary lengths to get them uh, an, a visa and to get them to the States. It didn't work so smoothly with my mother's youngest brother. He ended up spending a couple of years in Spain as kind of a midway point waiting and waiting and waiting for the paperwork to work out. The two other brothers had come um, as they weren't married and uh, and they came as uh, students. And then eventually, you know, they, they stayed and became green card holders and then citizens and were married and so forth and et cetera. But um, so their journeys, if you will, were a bit easier. But the real pull was getting um, finally my... Uh, uncle, who the one who ended up in Spain for a few years, and my grandparents uh, who were in Tehran, getting mm-hmm. them out to the States. But the good news is everybody made it, everybody got out, and everybody was more particularly reunited uh, in the States. Sure. Yeah. Ambassador Usa, for yourself, how did the Assyrian influence show up for you as you were growing up, if at all? Do you recall any recollections or memories of like foods or gatherings or right. even your time in Tehran? Yeah, uh, very much so. So growing up in a very small town, there are many benefits, uh, part of which is everybody knows everyone. Mm -hmm. And there are many downsides, which you probably guessed it is everybody knows everyone. (laughs) So um, my mother was exotic by local standards. And most people, despite northern New England main Yankee culture not being celebrated for, you know, being warm and embracing, the fact is, you just need to get to know them, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it isn't uh, quite as, it's, it's not the same maybe as some other parts of the U.S. or other parts of the world. 
But the fact is that, you know, my mother plunged in. She began working as a waitress at a local diner. And then she began working at a local factory where she stayed and retired with GTE Sylvania. And she made a huge bevy of friends and really, you know, plugged herself into to life there. You know, my father, oddly, although from there, you know, for generations, my dad was not an extrovert. Um, so that's not so much odd per se, but he actually was surrounded by a lot of history and a lot of family ties. But, um, you know, it, it just wasn't the same. The family didn't really, outside of the very immediate family, didn't really gather so much. So my mother really, in my view, made up for a lot of that by really pulling uh, a lot of people together. In terms of the Assyrian elements of it, yes, you know, it took me a long time, a long time. It took me, I don't know, at some point in my teen years to realize, oh yeah, not everybody eats, say, kipte or whatever. And yeah, they, they look at this in front of them and think, this is kind of cool because it's meat, particularly boys. But um, what is this exactly? <laughs> and my mother was heavy, you know, of course, on the Assyrian motherly, hul, 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 you know, um, uh, push, push with all the food. So, you know, there's there's no boy, particularly a growing boy or young male who doesn't find that just, hey, this is terrific. Mm -hmm. uh, I love being at your house. And my mother was just very warm and welcoming by nature. So that was a that was a huge boon. But yes, we did go to Assyrian conventions, not everyone all the time, but I would attend some number of those with my mother. Uh, you know, look, as a kid, um, I wasn't too interested in uh, whatever somebody was saying on a platform. You do a bit of Shekhani and, you know, then you you scoot or, or you hope like, oh, can we leave? Can we the convention with <laughs> the New York City? Can we go see? I don't know why. Or when I was a little boy, go to a toy store. I, right. I wasn't thinking about any of those issues. But I had one of my uncles who was uh, very, I don't know, you and I could maybe call him nationalistic, but was a very committed Assyrian nationalist who wrote about it a lot and who was politically active. So that what's his name? Ivan Kakovich. And so that way he wrote a book on the Samel massacre. He wrote uh, political manifestos, so forth and et cetera. So um, that was a different side of the education in terms of the Assyrian background. My mother was not at all uh, interested in any of that, plugged into it. Also, you know, that uncle was very outwardly secular. Mm -hmm. And in the Assyrian community, you know, where the church plays a big role, mm -hmm. uh, a little awkward. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and outspoken, not hostile, mm -hmm. but just outspoken sure. uh, about his, uh, his views. Um, but he had a lot to do with educating me on a lot of the particulars, not so much on ancient history of, you know, the Mesopotamian, the Assyrian, but not that. But more of, you know, hey, here's who we were as a people. Here's where we are. Here's what we've tried to do or those those who've been active in these things. Here are the challenges to it. Here are the divisions and the reasons why, you know, there are a group of Assyrians who are active, but who think we should move in this direction. Another mm -hmm. one who active, but think we should move in the other direction. The ones mm -hmm. from this part of wherever, say, Iraq or Iran or the former Soviet Union who have all the particularizations. And that, of course, if you're familiar with any ethnic group, you realize because you're part of that group, you're a Jew, you're an Armenian, you're black, you're whoever, that doesn't mean, oh, well, you know, you all think alike. Right. All of you people. Right. Well, no, they don't. They have differing views about all kinds of things, right. including things that are very directly related to the identity of that, of that group. Right. Um, 
And so really he's responsible for directly and also indirectly uh, educating me. And, you know, to be clear, he didn't sit me down and try to indoctrinate me. He just had opinions. He was forceful about expressing them or strong, maybe as a more gracious term. Uh, and he was also intellectually rigorous so that, you know, it was you couldn't just toss out a slogan or a bumper sticker, so to speak, and say, ah, you know, we're good. Right. Uh, no, it was he wanted to examine it and, and challenge assumptions much more. Uh, and of course, I grew up with um, the various cultural aspects that any Assyrian will recognize anything from aspects of the church and religious life to, uh, yes, you mentioned, of course, food, holidays, expressions. Uh, including the the things that also uh, every group that I've ever been part of has, which is has its own prejudices, mm-hmm. has its own outlook. Maybe a, a polite term would be, and has its own formed opinions. Sure, sure. About things. So I also grew up with those. You know, yeah. when you're around these people, yeah. you maneuver like this. <laughs> those people think this way, and you'll wanna, right? And so that's uh, why I, I I was not immune to any you know growing up with any of those as well. Right. Some of the benefits, really learning to adapt yourself nimbly to a variety of cultures as well as languages, some of them diametrically, maybe not quite diametrically opposed, but some of them real oil and water mixes. And, you know, I, I think it will go without saying that if somebody grows up that way and then, surprise, becomes a diplomat, you might draw from that experience and uh, absolutely uh, all the time. And the other aspect of it that's been indispensable to me really is just as a human being, but of course, professionally has been the requirement because, you know, I didn't have a choice growing up, the requirement to understand different points of view and to realize, hey, they've got a point of view I share or share some of or don't share at all or find abhorrent as the case may be. But, you know, I know this person, I've been in their home, I've been to their weddings, I've been to their funerals, I've been to their, you know, and I have a certain sort of human empathy uh, for them. And again, you know, in my business, empathy is absolutely imperative, you know, because you cannot understand someone else's point of view. You don't have to have sympathy. You may have it, but you don't have to have that professionally. Professionally, what is necessary is that you have uh, empathy, because the empathy allows you to get inside someone else's space. I'm speaking figuratively, of course, and understand or try to understand why do you see the world this way? Probably one of the most important skills to have. Uh, I've I've been thankful for it. Uh, you know, it, it hasn't made me a saint, but I've I've always been thankful for it. Tell me the story of how you ended up attending boarding school and what the experience was like and and what it taught you. Yeah. So uh, my dad went to the um, ninth grade and dropped out. He joined the military and the army uh, put him through a GED, general equivalency diploma at some point. I can't remember exactly when. My mother came out of the war-torn Soviet Union and then uh, went into Iran. And within Iran was part of a traditional um, a Syrian family. And uh, you know what that means. And I think most of our listeners will appreciate it, which was as they came to work through the tier of where are we going to put the very scant uh, family means and resources? Um, you know, it, it went to the boys, it went to her brothers, about which, by the way, my mother had no objection. She thought, oh, well, that's that's just the way things go. Mm-hmm. 
So in any event, my parents, it won't surprise you, prized education for me uh, in the way that parents very typically have through time, which is, hey, I whatever my story is, I want my daughter or my son to not have to have the same bruises and scars I had. doesn't mean that you want to, them to have a padded life, insulated from life, but it does mean that I want the opportunities that are going to be available to you to be greater than those I had, particularly parents who came up in tough circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that was the case with my parents. And we had a uh, minister in, the home, in my hometown in Maine, who of course was educated, but was also more awake to both options and the lack of options. Mind you, this is a, 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 you know, a small town and knew and started to ask me from a relatively young age when honestly, I just wasn't thinking about these things and, and more honestly, didn't know how to think about them really, such as, so what do you think you're going to do with yourself? You um, seem to like books and you um you like the outdoors and you like sports well i don't know you know i'll join the navy or the army or i'll join one of the branches of the military service or you know maybe i could be a fishing game warden do you know what that is no they call it something different in canada like department of natural resources oh okay you know they're the the people who go out and make sure that you're not fishing or hunting illegally sure. so i loved to fish and hunt i loved uh, grew up in rural america and i thought wow you mean I could get paid uh, and I could carry a gun and I could be a, a good guy, you know, cops and robbers sort of thing. And wow, I could get paid to be outdoors and do this. Oh my God, could it get any better? So for a time, um, that's what I thought like, hey, you know, this, this sounds just about perfect. As I started to get a little older, I began to think about college only in the very loose sense that, oh, that's an out there thing. And it seems to be that that's a good thing. My parents never pressured me about it. They just said, you know, you know, maybe one day you could do that. And that was really it. And, you know, I think my parents in candor really knew more about it other than there are people who do that. Maybe you can be one. I don't think they knew how to go from point A to point B step by step. Anyway, so this minister actually knew a fair bit about Assyrians and was flabbergasted and to find that my mother was one. He knew the history. He knew the story of the Nestorians. He knew about the various missionaries, particularly in Iran and the Mm. 19th century Americans who got out there. And he was sort of gobsmacked that, really? Uh, Really? You're an Assyrian? And he showed us this collection he had of his books on this and Mm. um, a well-read guy. So at some point, I don't remember the precise transition. um, He continued periodically to ask me, so what are you going to do your, with yourself? And one day, I can't remember apropos of what, I think he was discussing with me a book I had read. And now and again, he would give me a book and say, if you like that, you know, you might like this book. I, of course, at the time had no idea that these were what you and I would refer to as the classics. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had no clue. Like, oh, wow, this guy just seems to know good books. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would discuss them. Uh, and I would say mow the church lawn or be talking to him afterwards. And we would talk about that. And so one day he said to me, have you ever thought about boarding school, prep school? I had no idea what they were. Absolutely not any idea at all. Mm-hmm. It was completely outside the realm of my experience. And he said, you know, here are some things you might think about. These, this would open some opportunities for you. 
And given the fact that you're a little, I mean, he was much more polite, a little strange already where here you are, but you have this other side, you speak some other languages in varying degrees at that point of Syrian and Russian. And um, uh, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've spent some, again, relative to my age and stage of life, then some fair bit of time overseas, you know, you might find that this would be something that you'd find an alignment with, that it might work. So he um, took me around uh, to a couple of the schools, did tours in the same way you look at a college campus and take a tour. And, you know, it started to get more complicated. I think my parents began to wonder, what are you doing here? Because as my dad said to me one day, places like that, about which he knew nothing either, they're not for people like us. Hmm. Anyway, so the, the deal, such as a deal was, was you can continue to sort of pursue this, what I'm sure seemed to my parents, to my mother, I think a bit tantalizing because she'd seen some of the doors that were open for her brothers. But at the same time, for my father, I think he was, a, to be to be honest, I think he was a little suspicious of what's the game here? Because, mm. you know, we people who do that are not us. And, you know, it's got to cost some outrageous amount of money. We don't have that kind of money. So the minister said, look, um, if um, the schools like Henry and Henry likes the schools, they do have scholarships. And if at the end of the day, the scholarship that assuming Henry pursues this, that he obtains can't cover the costs, well, then that's the end of it. And if it can, would you be receptive? And I think Mm. my father just thought it was nutty. Mm. Um, not, it wasn't hostile. I just think he just couldn't understand how would, you know, like you're going to get something for nothing. It just doesn't add up. Anyway, uh, a long story short, I did go through the interviews. I went through the, you know, you have to sit standardized exams, just like you do for college with SATs and so forth and interviews and one thing or another. And came the day when the announcements come out, just like with colleges and universities, there's a set date when they send out their admissions, notifications, and so forth. And it worked out. And I got enough of a a scholarship that put my father mostly at ease. I think he was still wondering, well, there's got to be a hook here. That's right. There's got to be a catch. And then the school, the boarding school I went to was both very international and what I can honestly say quite ecumenical. It was very deliberate about Mm. not being an elitist place about really being having a different tone about who they were and what the mission of the school was. And uh, can you believe, you know, I met other kids like me there, including other Assyrian-American kids, not a ton really? of them. Really? Oh, wow. Who, in fact, weirdly, had been in school with me in Iran. Oh, my goodness. You can believe that. So to give you a sense of the kind of, the, the kind of place. And it was a... Hugely enriching experience for me, I can say in the most literal sense of the word, it it changed my life. It was a very different education than I would have otherwise had access to. Not in, I'm making no claims of moral superiority here, just both in terms of the students who were there from around the world and around the country, in terms of the offerings, uh, many of which honestly were uh, over my head initially. And it was... uh, it was a, a struggle to get myself leveled off where, uh, okay, this is, this is going to work where I'm not living in terror of 
failing out and ideas that I had never come into contact with. We were taking, I remember in the 10th grade stuff I read as a later, years later, read as a graduate student Mm. that I had read there in the 10th grade. Now, obviously, the understanding I had in the 10th grade with the first encounter with that material and some of those thinkers was not the way I was uh, thinking about it years later as a graduate student. But it was a very, uh, it was a life changer. I'm curious to know, because I never grew up with anybody that had gone to boarding school. At that point, did you ever think about the friends that you were growing up with and at school and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be away from them. And what about life here? Or, you know, did the minister kind of paint a picture for you that was much more appealing that enticed you to you know, kind of um, let that go even yeah, from a temporary yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough time. It's always tough for a young person to leave their home, whatever, unless it's an absolutely hostile environment and they're desperate. Sure. It's always tough for a young person. You know, they might have courageous thoughts or adventurous fantasies or something, but it's, it's tough to, to walk away. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you walk away with the comfort that you're not, leaving forever. Yeah. But, you know, um, in my case, going off and getting that education, it really, I think when I came home the next time, I don't know if it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, but I think my parents sensed you're different now. I mean, you're not, and you're still who you are, um, mm-hmm. but in another way you're different. And I felt it mm-hmm. on an interior level and to be absolutely crystal clear about it. As some to use a term I mentioned before, because I know the image of boarding schools is either a Dickensian hell, you know, where they're they're beaten and treated cruelly, you know, may I have another bowl of porridge or something, or uh, a very elitist, snobby perspective. Of course, it wasn't either, and it was, uh, yeah. I mean, I I felt the separation from friends, uh, not because they were willful about it or I was willful about it, but, you know, the friendships and the teammates and classmates, they were continuing that journey. And I, you know, had taken a fork in the road, if you will. I was excited about my new friends, but I was, yeah, I was was sad to be away from my closest friends Mm -hmm. right back home. So we you know, I'm still in contact with some of them, albeit in the way that middle-aged adults are anymore, which is, hey, on Facebook, oh, happy birthday, Susan. Right. right? <laughs> but, uh, but I certainly have the memories and carry those. And it's just a part of who I am. I mean, that's sure. my home. That's where I grew up. That will always be a part of me, notwithstanding the education. Higher education, as I understand it, was very important to your mother. Where did you decide to go to college after boarding school? I went to Amherst College in Massachusetts. That's where I graduated. I I had the benefit of, I think, and I still think it now at this age of my life, and I thought it at the moment of giving me a little too much benefit of the doubt uh, in many ways because of um, folks who I thought were, I thought I could see were better students than I was. And I was trying to forge an identity in two worlds at that point. One, probably any number of students were, I don't know everyone's stories, but I was very keen to be independent. So that meant that through the, uh, through the army, I was doing ROTC, 
And it was a strange time for that because Amherst, like many colleges, had kicked ROTC off its campus during the the Vietnam era. Mm -hmm. So the way you did it um, was you went to a nearby university so many times a week and you fulfilled your ROTC requirement. And they, in turn, the army would send a check to, you know, your college and you you could fund your life. So that was a little um, a little peculiar, and that had some demands uh, on it that you know was outside. You know, not not unusual if you were a student who was working a lot to earn your way through school. But the the thing about the army was they had a way also of taking an ROTC, and at the time you, I was also in the reserves at the same time, and so that meant you spent weekends away. It was good because, for as far as I was concerned, uh, you know, I was getting paid for it. But also long breaks like spring break or winter break. That was an opportunity for the army to send you to some more training, <laughs> uh, and also in the summers. So, um, you know, it was sort of a strange identity where one part of my life was over here, and another part was in this traditional college liberal arts campus. Mm. And what did you eventually end up graduating with, degree wise? Religion, religious studies was a strong interest of mine, not because I saw myself as a cleric, but, you know, the, the minister I'd mentioned in my hometown had a very formative influence on my life. I studied Russian uh, as well, given the past I have spoken to you about. And those were all interests that later uh, in my life uh, continued. And in fact, in one or another form or fashion, still continue today. So uh, STEM was unheard of. There were people who had interest in those issues, but no one was calling any of that stuff STEM in the day. Right. Um, computers, uh, when I was an undergraduate, you went to the computer center. You know, there were people didn't have PCs in their rooms. That was an unheard of luxury. Uh, you know, you went to the computer center, there was this weird building and it would crash regularly and you'd lose whatever you were working on. It was a massive pain. <laughs> uh, anyway, and I didn't have uh, any fantasy nor any talent that I was going to be a doctor, nor any interest in the hard sciences or engineering or any of these things. I was uh, very much a humanities person. Math had been easy for me until around the, until algebra. And then algebra, I don't know why, my, it's like my brain went dead. You and point. I both. Yeah. And even at that point, I didn't have any illusion that, uh, you know, I'll be a mathematician or a scientist. It just hadn't been problematic, but as but when it did become so, and it was more of a struggle, of course, it began to shut down options in terms of what you would study. But the positive way to look at it is, okay, what are my strengths and what are my talents and what are the things that are not going to be a winner for me? And that, that was, I had very few illusions about that. And so how did you end up becoming a diplomat? <laughs> um, well, like a lot of life, you've probably seen those charts or, or it's, it's often a meme, I know. My kids have WhatsApp them, so I'm sure you've seen them before. <laughs> um, you know, chart one is how you imagine the trajectory going from a linear, logical, sequential sure. process between, you know, you're born, you're raised, you go to school, <laughs> and there's this straight line. And then there's one or another successful leap on along a linear line to whatever it is that you do, right? But adulthood and some, some profession. And then there's the truer one that's much more realistic for most humans in life. And it's a, a squiggly, all over the map sort of place. And that's absolutely true for my life. It looked much more like that. So how did I end up being, becoming a diplomat? 
in between the uh, service as an army officer and then graduate school, I ma maintained interests in uh, things that, well, actually what I told you about. So graduate school-wise, I was studying at the same time philosophy, theology, and national security policy, Soviet military policy. And they weren't, you know, they're not really complementary in a direct sense. Uh, and they're not framed in opposites either. But, you know, the question was, what, what, do you, what do you do with this? And this interest, which was pretty inchoate in terms of uh, international events. And uh, I had only the loosest sense of what foreign policy or security policy or diplomacy or any of these things really were about. I'd read about them as, in the same way everyone else who'd been a student had read about them. But I had no more formula, uh, sorry, no more coherent sense of what any of them really meant. Um, and at some point, again, uh, you know, the vicissitudes of life or uh, the accidents of it, if you prefer, you know, you, you, you meet a professor or you take a course at some point and somebody discourages you, but somebody else encourages you. And that was really more of my story. And I knew that when I got out of graduate school, I wanted to find, if you will, and I'm saying this with humor because listeners can't see my face, but uh, my fortune, so to speak, in Washington, D.C., because the government and the things that were about government think tanks, the federal agencies of the U.S. government, the U.S. Congress, uh, all of these things, the interests that I had really, you know, they weren't in finance, i.e. New York. They were in Washington. So knowing not much more than that, I met my wife in graduate school, and so uh, we were married on one day, and we packed our car maybe two days at the most later, which, you know, for newlywed graduate students is pretty much, you know, if you can sell your books, it's down to a couple milk cases, you know, those plastic milk carts right. that you have for furniture, and then maybe some ratty old car, and that was exactly us, and we, uh, we dropped down to Washington. Uh, and stayed initially with my aunt and uncle, Assyrians. And we stayed initially with my aunt and uncle until we found jobs and got set up. And eventually, um, I don't know, maybe less than two years into it, I found myself uh, taking a job at the State Department, not initially in the Foreign Service, in the Civil Service initially. And shortly thereafter, the Soviet Union dissolved. And while the corpse, if you will, of it was still warm, there was a search across the State Department for people who were willing to go out and open new embassies. And now these, you know, suddenly we had the birth or uh, premature birth in some cases of, you know, they'd been a state of the Soviet Union. And now, you know, on a Friday, you're that. And the next morning, you're, uh, wow, you're a country and you need to start doing all the things countries do. And so I found myself involved in that because someone, uh, a, um, a superior of mine, somebody I worked for, remembered, hey, you, you speak some Russian, right? You, you can recognize a Cyrillic letter. Uh, and are you willing to go do this? And I said, sure, sounds fascinating. Anyway, one thing led to another. I really fell in love with the work in the field, working in embassies, working as a, a, what we call a, a political officer, a reporting officer, which uh, is really amounts to finding out you know who are the political actors a lot of that doesn't require the brain of einstein or kissinger which is you know okay who's the minister of x and who's in charge of y the people who are beyond that in civil society it's maybe a bit more homework 
but you start to develop relationships with them. You determine where is this, in this case, this country, this new country going? What are the relationships like? What are their challenges? What are their talents? So forth and et cetera. And then like a journalist who, a journalist who, who does a very similar sort of role, then you begin writing about it and you begin you know, sending these reports in and formulating assessments and so forth. So that was, um, that was, a, that was originally how I, uh, one thing led to another, one assignment led to another, and eventually I formally came into the, the foreign service. That's amazing. Could you share some memorable experiences and, and places you've lived throughout your career? Sure. Um, in Tajikistan, which was really my first diplomatic field assignment, I'd been on diplomatic, uh, what we call TDYs, it's government speak for temporary duty. It means an assignment somewhere. An assignment on TDY could be for a day or a night, or it could be for six months or what have you. And so I spent some long TDYs um, in um, Dushanbe, Tajikistan in 92 and 93, helping establish the embassy support what we were doing there. And so there's so many memories there. Tajikistan was after its birth as a um, country for which, of course, it wasn't prepared. Then it, through no fault of its own, it just suddenly the plan, which had not been a plan, was, you know, bang, you know, everything had fallen apart. Working with people shoulder to shoulder, whether they were newly installed in government and I'm thinking now not Americans, or whether they were what had been, when I, particularly when I was a military officer, you know, the, the Soviet menace, and sitting shoulder to shoulder with them now trying to work out common problems was a heady experience. Mm. Um, I, I don't mean to say we were immediately fast friends or we were enemies. We had both been raised in quite different worlds and raised with ways to see the other and also trained, not just in our households, in our society, but in our roles as military or government officials. And suddenly finding ourselves now kneecap to kneecap, eyeball to eyeball with each other, fortunately not pointing a gun at each other. It was, it was a, and I, I just can't say enough about what a heady experience that was, heady in the sense of, I think, for both sides, you know, trying to stumble our way through. For me, I'll never forget driving through what had you know, only shortly before and for decades been forbidden. Mm. It was verboten that any American could be in these places. And then pulling into these towns or these cities and these offices and meeting with people and talking with them, again, which was just unthinkable because you were in the equivalent of what had been denied territory before. That was a remarkable experience. We were then in Moscow briefly. Um, which was, again, a remarkable experience because things were still very touch and go with the Russian Federation, not so much in terms of hostilities, but more of how was it going to be forming and shaping. I remember going out to Siberia in December of 93 for uh, elections that they were holding on their constitution and status. And again, it was obviously winter. And here we were, Americans trotting around, observing the elections and talking with Russian officials. And for both of us, you know, it was just weird. It was sort of like Martians meeting people from Earth and people from Earth meeting Martians. And then in Tbilisi, uh, Georgia, for a few years with my family, again, you know, they're coming out of their own civil war as well. And here is uh, Edward Shevardnadze, who for me had been a, a this far distant removed world figure 
who now I was sitting in meetings with, with my ambassador, mm. because he had come back to his home country, no longer the Soviet foreign minister. And, you know, at this ep- epic making moment in history with uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, now he's the head of this state, this country, which is trying to, to pull itself together and pull itself up. Uh, and for, again, an extraordinarily surreal experience for me as somebody who had, you know, stood outside and, and looked at this, this behemoth of, you know, the, the Soviet mass. And then just being in people's homes again, you know, just developing relationships with other human beings, seeing them happy, seeing them disappointed, seeing them hopeful, and just forging relationships. The human aspect is always and I've never lost that sense of thrill. And I can dial it forward to now here in Jordan. This is my second assignment in, in Jordan. And it's um, terrific to be reunited with many people and in, in, in some other cases to develop new relationships. But, you know, there again, you know, my mother and father died while I was here in, in this current assignment as ambassador. And who was I, you know, who was it? who I could lean on and who knew me fairly well and vice versa. And, you know, I was surrounded by, you know, the expressions of sympathy, of course, from um, American friends and from colleagues, but also from a collection of Jordanians who, um, you know, I now knew fairly well um, and who really stood by me in this time. So there, there's just sort of an endless series of snapshots in, in time and, you know, one day um, in the not too distant future, um, this too will end as in, you know, my career as a diplomat. And I'll go back to the States, you know, and, and I'll have a lifetime of memories. Most of them, of course, are positive and warm, occasional moment of sheer terror. Yeah. And, and a lot of fun in between. But just to, you know, for me, it's been extraordinary that I could make this life of mine I don't know that I, honestly that I made it per se, but there are a lot of accidents in life and a lot of things you can't really plan for that brought me here to this moment, uh, including this moment of the podcast with you. There's no grand design in any of it. It's just how the chemistry or the elements of my life came together. Right. And what an incredible life uh, you've lived thus far. Your daughter had mentioned, and you had also mentioned earlier in the interview that you've become more curious about your Syrian heritage and trying to, you know, put pieces together of, of, a, yes. of a puzzle and your roots. What has sparked your curiosity and interest? Um, I think undeniably the loss of both parents. I think being an only child, uh, I don't have siblings that I can pull some of this from. And also as a parent, wanting to leave my children a legacy of this is who you are and part of understanding who you are aside from what you make of yourself, which I don't control at the end of the day, whether any parent wishes to or not at the end of the day, you know, um, there's a part of that that you just can't. And for which I am grateful, but I'd like them to understand two quite different sides of where they they come from, because they have a heritage as Mainers and New Englanders, which sets them very squarely back in predominantly Great Britain. And that's one side of them. And that's who anyone sees when they see their face or they see their names. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole nother side of them that's almost like, did you ever see that TV show that was popular? I think it was Netflix, Stranger Things. No, but I've heard of it. Okay, so it's like there's this inverted universe, right? There's this other dimension, you know, that you, unless you're capacitated to see it, 
you know, uh, ordinary folks. So to use maybe the Hogwarts example, what are the normal people called? The non-warlocks, they have some term for them. Anyway, so, you know, unless you're capacitated to see platform number nine and a half at, say, Charing Cross Station, all you see is platform nine. <laughs> you don't know that between sure. the walls, there's this whole other world. And so for um, kids who are of mixed heritage, this is really important that they understand this is where you come from. This is who you are. It's got some huge strengths to it. Um, and it has some incoherencies as well, because, you know, at your optimal, you're one half of whatever that is. Right. So um, I don't think it's a, a downside. I don't I don't. I don't worry about that. I've never thought that way. But, you know, sometimes even within your own culture or cultures, you may have some difficulty, um, not day to day, you know, going about your life, but being accepted as, you know, you're you're kind of a half breed. So I don't mean to suggest that I, I've, I've thought that that's something that they think about, nor that I do either. I, I never thought that way and nobody ever threw any of that at me. But you know, the 21st century now is a different world than the one I started out in and their environments and their factors and whatever the next chapters will be for them as they go forward with or without me in, in their lives anymore. You know, it's it's going to be a different experience for them and it doesn't have to be uh, mine, but but I want them to know this part of themselves. And I would also like to be able to to give back. I mean, you know, there are you know, we still are a stateless people. Mm -hmm. We still are. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we have um, suffered epically and extraordinarily. I don't think that should be our signature going forward, suffering and uh, so forth. But we also can't uh, step away from it and deny it. But the story isn't told. And it that means justice has not been done. And that does bother me because I deal with stories like that and have throughout my career. And also, even leaving career stuff aside, just as a uh, uh, an amateur student, if you will, of history, and all of that still is not addressed here. We haven't had that moment. We're still kind of that weird, you know, Assyrian gang who are having a picnic on the oh, there's an ethnic group having their day or their food. They're eating their food over mm -hmm. there in the corner at some park, mm -hmm. and uh, okay, I, I don't, I don't. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But I, I still think the story really as, as justice, not only to the people and particularly those who did suffer and more particularly died and usually brutally, the story is told. And we haven't managed to do that too well. Occasionally, there have been some attempts to do it and some tries. But for the most part, we're, you know, I, I feel unfulfilled there and I feel an obligation to, to do that. I really can't take it on, at least not in a, a whole, in an advocacy role in my current role, because I'm a U.S. official and that's not my mandate here as U.S. official uh, and particularly as ambassador here. My duties are other than that. But speaking to you as who I am in this podcast, which is Henry Worcester, who also happens to be this other side that's not so evident, this uh, private citizen and this person who happens to be a Syrian. Yeah, that that's very operative in my mind. Right. I couldn't help but you'd mentioned that being half-breed, the last episode that I had done was with a, a group of people who had married into the Assyrian culture. So they're not ethnically Assyrian, but married in Assyrian. And one of them made 
a, a comment that kind of stood out to me, which was that, you know, when they raise their children, they want them to know that they can be fully Assyrian and fully, you know, whatever the other component of it is, and want them to feel that way and not necessarily feel like they are half of something. So I think you've done a really great job with that because when I've conversed with your daughter, she has a a great deal of knowledge and understanding of who she is and her Assyrian side. And credits to you for that. Credits to your mother as well, because she had mentioned that her her grandmother, uh, your mother, has had a great deal of impact and in, in, in influence and in understanding, you know, who who she is and all about her Assyrian heritage. You, your family has a scholarship held in, in memory of your mother. Could you tell us how you all decided to honor her in that way and what that scholarship means to you personally? Uh, we call it the Rita First Generation Scholarship, and it can be found on bold.org. And the idea is to honor what my mother did. And my mother was just an extraordinarily giving person. I'd like to think I'm that good, but I know I'm not. Uh, she was just just had a soul that was crafted differently and was hugely giving. It was not only what she believed, it was also who she was. So she didn't have to fabricate, I, I should put my nice face on. Mm. This is just who she was. Um, maybe uh, you and I can say it would have been nice if she'd had a little bit of selfishness to give to herself. I'm, I'm saying that a bit tongue in cheek, sure. but um, she always put others, she always put others first. We've all heard about that sort of value. Uh, and maybe we've all known someone like that, or maybe not. Um, but certainly she was that in my life and my children all knew her as, you know, not only as small children, but also as adults. And then literally it was they who held her in their arms while I was overseas as she died. So uh, the uh, daughter who you spoke with put together really did all the homework. And in fact, as you and I speak today, has just queued up yet, you know, the, the round of interviews of finalists that we're doing. The idea is that we honor what my mother did, which is, you know, you, you came as an immigrant to a new country, and in my mother's case, several of them, and you made sure that others could have what you could not have. You really enabled others, and you had some sacrifices. It cost you. It really cost you and not because you, you know, well, you know, your checking account got debited. That's fine. That's not immoral to cost you that way. But it, but it really cost my mother in terms of opportunities. But you know, she was so committed that others should have this. So this was true of her own family. It was true for me, and it was true for my children. You know, without her and what she enabled. And mind you, again, this is someone who I told you what she did in terms of education, her own, and uh, work. So this is not somebody who, you know, came to the streets and then, you know, became a Silicon Valley wizard. Uh, you know, she she never had much, but she always took the, what she had and ensured that, you know, this will go for you because she had seen with her own eyes uh, in her family and with her son what education could do. So she became a huge believer that, you know, with this and particularly in a place like America, uh, you can have opportunities that would have been unthinkable and unthinkable, even if maybe you had this education in other places, because you can do these things 
and you can step up to, to things that you wouldn't have been able to even think about. And what she also appreciated was when it changes your life, it changes also the lives of your children, because now they will have a different baseline, a different starting point in terms of what they think is even a possibility for them to dream about. And that doesn't mean they all need to uh, get, uh, for, first off, even college educations, much less anything more, and nor do they all need to become doctors, lawyers, judges, or some such thing. Not at all. But the fact is, you'll have opportunities and doors opened for you. So her scholarship attempts to honor all of that, which is really her ethos and her approach. And that's what we aim to do here. We deliberated a fair bit about, you know, should we take this money? And mind you, this is from uh, my mother's and father's savings, what they, they had. And should we take this and should we try to put a little bit of money into a whole bunch of pockets I don't know what you do with 300 bucks, 500, whatever. Certainly as a student, I would have appreciated every penny of it. But, you know, where, where you enable, I don't know, the buying anymore. You know, textbooks were always expensive and today they're insanely even more so. So you enable a couple textbooks for a course for a bunch of kids. Or do you take the money, sink it into a person and really aim with that? to try to change a life. And through that life, a paying it forward through them. And we decided to do that. So the other is also a contribution. And it's also valid. And every student who's out there who's in need would welcome, of course, either one. But our decision was to do it this way. Right. It's a hefty amount of money. Could you remind me what the dollar so amount I think was? Today it's about, uh, it varies a little bit by contributions on top of the base we've established. I think it's uh, 35,000. Right. So, it's, I mean, we aim to really put it into, you know, one student and say, here you go. We want this to change your life and to change the opportunities you would have had otherwise or wouldn't have had more, more particularly. And something that I love about it, aside from everything that you had mentioned, is that your daughter, I'm assuming your daughter had written up the description of it. She did. Right. Yeah. So, She's the and, hero here. Int intentional or not, but yeah. it really allows every student who comes by that scholarship and especially who wants to apply for it, one informs them about who, of course, your mother is, but who the Assyrians are mm -hmm. might be the first time that they'd ever heard about Assyrians. And they're probably going to do their research about Assyrians if they want to apply for that scholarship, right? right. So. Right. Just the ability to have that level of introduction to so many students, because how many, how many applicants have you had? Thousands, right? 2,771. Yep. 2,000 plus applicants yeah. at the very least have had to, you know, have read that, have looked into that, if not right. more, viewing it. And I just think that that's so incredible. It, it was a very, when I had seen that, I was like, wow, this is such a unique way of also being able to like honor who Assyrians are and have it be an introductory way for other people to know who Assyrians are and what they have gone through through modern times. So I, you know, I, I find it incredible. I, I commend you and your family for uh, doing that because it really is a life changing opportunity. I work with students who are in first in their families to go to college or are low income and um, something like that literally is life changing. So 
amazing for for you all for being able to honor your mother in that way. No, it's a, it's a it's a real pleasure, not because that's the right response to in polite society, but because it it, it very much is. And you know, you really hope that you can really have that effect for anyone in over the course of your life. And uh, this is a means, you know, that we know with uh, core certainty that my mom would would really applaud. Sure. Yeah. Ambassador, the last question that I have for you is we have listeners from all around the world, Assyrians who tune in. Um, what is something that you would like to say to them? I, uh, I follow as many of these as I can keep up with in my spare time, meaning typically in the evenings and on the weekend. Uh, the different um, social media presence is really the only way I can track track the, the 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 multitude that are spread all over the place. And I see uh, a yearning in many cases for people to, particularly folks younger than me, to find a way to bring some coherence to their to their identity, to who they are. And and I see a search for it. I also see a few people saying, "Here's the here's the way. You know, you, this is the way it should be." You know, you should sign up to this. And I've watched this before because I'm old, because I'm older. Uh, I've watched this before. I'm thinking particularly of someone older than me, my uncle. And I was disappointed that there were so many intense divisions within the Assyrian community. So I'm not naive. And I don't mean to suggest that, oh, my tea was upset one day because you know somebody doesn't share my view or someone else's view. But just I would like to see a search of, for a bit more common ground um, and to be able to unify around that a little less suspicion, you know, of the motives. And it's fine not to be a naive. I get it. You know, not everybody out there is Syrian or whoever they may be is maybe has your best interests or mine. And I, I get that just as a human being. But and then, and a, you know, there's a. There's a desperate need for for leadership, and that's not a ding on anyone. That's just how do you take a community that is, to put it in modern industrial terms, a distributed network? You know, so we've got large pockets of communities in Europe, Australia, Canada, the States, within the States and various places and so on down the line, the Middle East. How do you, what do you, other than, hey, I have a common heritage with you, but other than that, you know, what, what do we do? How do we pull that together? How do you forge something out of that? And what is it that you need to forge out of that? Is that I see some people still which uh, who post the, um, uh, you know, hey, I'm back in the homeland thing. I mean, typically it's Nineveh Plains or, or something. Okay. Uh, and, you know, hey, everybody should want to band together and come back here. And if you don't, you're, you're, not, um, you're not a good Assyrian, uh, basically, if you, if you don't want to do that. And then I see folks who, um, you know, are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I realize, again, more as a human being than as an Assyrian, look, uh, you've got a disparate collection of folks. They're of this age and that. They're of these talents. They're of these interests. And, uh, you know, but but is the unifying theme among us going to be, you know, Sheikhani? Or is that is that really it? And so... It's not, this is not a critique. It's really just a question. And please, it's not a, it's not a critique masking as a question. Uh, you know, what do we want and how will we go about determining that? You know, we watched the Jews be a stateless people for throughout time until they weren't in 48. 
Is that the model? Um, we watched the Armenians who were had a place, even though it was separated out and the Armenian diaspora was all over the place. Still, they had a base and then, then they had a country. You know, what, what's the aspiration and, and what should that be? And realizing that just like among Jews or Armenians or pick, pick any, any group, not everybody's going to share it, share it. But is there a, a consensus view about who we are and what we ought to be? Or do we instead go to a more, uh, I don't know, a more 21st century space agey and frankly virtual model where we remain fo- focused on a function and an identity, but not so much a form as in a place or a venue? And we we accept that this is who we are, and we are spread out in so many of these places. What is in common are the following things, you know, the heritage, the history, the language, the whatever. But we, we work with that. And I love what the Assyrian Policy Institute has been doing. Are you familiar with them? Of course. I haven't been able to, f- I'm able to follow everything they're doing, but what I can keep up with, and I have spoken with them as well, you know, certainly within the U.S. system. And I would imagine the Canadian one is very similar, but the U.S. system, and this is true in Europe and it's true most places, you need organization and you need advocacy. And that even is whatever, notwithstanding your objective, your objective is to go back to the League of Nations 100 years ago and and try to forge a state out of it. Oops, that didn't work out. Uh, Or it's something entirely different. And you need people who can educate others about why they should care. There's a whole lot of identity out there now from your sexuality to your ethnic background, to your color. There's a lot of identity coming at people now. Mm. And how do you escape from the cynicism of, oh, it's the woke brigade. You escape from that, oh, another ethnic group with another mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah, people, people have hit fatigue. So what do you, how do you communicate against all that? Because it's not enough to say, by God, this is a righteously important thing. And, you know, don't you realize people died? Shake them by the lapels. You know, a lot of people have died for all sorts of things. That doesn't minimize it, but it also doesn't get them to care. So, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? And I'm just a huge believer in education. You know, educate, organize, lead. And, you know, accept the fact that not everyone, not everyone even within the tribe, within the community, is going to accept the vision. But if you've got at least 51%, you got something. If you got 60% better, if you've got whatever up in the math, all the better. But you won't get everybody on board with everything. But the the, the suspicion and the casting uh, aspersions and things about one another, you know, we unite well, like most groups, it's not unique to Assyrians, when we perceive an outside threat. Then all the, you know, shiving of one another drops because hey who the hell are they to be talking about us and then we're 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 banned very tightly right brotherhood sisterhood the the millet the who cares you know we're all one forget if you're shopping by workers by whoever we're all one but when that drops away it's back to the you know and i so i uh, i don't have an answer to that it troubles me but i see shining spots as well Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Our reach continues to expand thanks to listeners like you who by word of mouth let their family and friends know about the Assyrian podcast. So if you enjoy this episode, please send it out to two or three people who you think would benefit from listening. Thanks so much and see you next time.